Brethren, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to 2 Chronicles and chapter 28. 2 Chronicles and chapter 28. You can find this on page 379 in your chair Bible. And we are looking at the second half of the chapter, beginning in verse 16 and reading to the end. The wicked king Ahaz has come to the throne. He has brought the kingdom of Judah into a state of ruin because of his idolatry. And now we discover it gets even worse. Well, let's give our attention to the Word of God. Before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come crying out to You for the light that only You can shine upon Your sacred Word. And Lord, we pray that You would please enlighten us, instruct us in the truth. Lord, You tell us that the Scriptures are written for our instruction. And Lord, may we take that to heart. May You warn us by them. May You shape our lives by them. Drive us to see our need of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Verse 16 of chapter 28. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. For the Edomites had again invaded and defeated Judah and carried away captives. And the Philistines had made raids on the cities in the Shephelah and in the Negev of Judah and had taken Beth Shemesh, Aijalon, Geradoth, Succo with its villages, Timnah with its villages, and Gimzo with its villages. And they settled there. For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord in the house of the king and of the princess and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same king Ahaz, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me but they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. And he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. And he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah, he made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking to anger the Lord, the God of his fathers. Now the rest of his acts and all his ways from first to last, Behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Ahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, for they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah his son reigned in his place. This is the word of the Lord, and may he bless it to us tonight. We've been out of Chronicles for a couple of weeks But it's crucial that we remember the historical situation that I spelled out to you, what is now three weeks ago, when we first studied 2 Chronicles 28, so we can understand what exactly is going on in this text. You see, in the days when wicked Ahaz took the throne, there's a mighty flood rising in the east, Assyria, under Tiglath-Pileser III. It's growing in power and expanding its dominion. And underneath the threat of Assyrian overthrow, a band of nations, like a UN coalition, 
but only with an actual determination to fight, comes together to stand against Assyrian power. Now, this had worked a little over a hundred years before at the Battle of Karkar in 853 BC. That battle is not recorded in Scripture, but it is recorded in the annals of Assyria, where ten kings, including King Ahab, and his name is on the Assyrian relief that you can look at in the British Museum, they had together repelled the power of Assyria. So now, again, over a hundred years later, as a new storm brews, Rezin, the king of Syria, where Damascus is the capital, Pekah, the king of Israel, along with the Philistines and the Edomites, are pressuring King Ahaz to join their cause. They want him to put the wealth and the warriors of his kingdom to work to fend off Assyria. Well, Ahaz didn't want to play ball. And I showed you a few weeks back from Isaiah chapter 7 how the Lord came and appealed to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah in this particular situation. These united kings, therefore, have started attacking Ahaz because he won't help them. And it's gotten pretty desperate. We've seen people killed, cities overrun, folks taken captive, 120,000 slaughtered in one day, verse 6 of chapter 28. Ahaz's people were being carted off, and it was all because of the wickedness of Ahaz. The Lord was humbling Judah in view of their idolatry. So Isaiah comes to him, confronts him, and says, you need to be firm in the faith. You need to look to Yahweh. Ask for a sign from the Lord. And Ahaz, under a facade of piety, not wanting to put the Lord, his God, to the test, even though God told him to put him to test, he refused to ask for a sign. In other words, he rejected the Lord's help. So Isaiah tells him, Isaiah 7.13, Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? In other words, Ahaz scoffs at the grace of God and he rejects the covenant of God. And now the Lord determines he will give a sign of covenant hope, but Ahaz will never see it. Isaiah 7, the next verse, A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel. A Savior will come. The Davidic house will not be destroyed. God's covenant purposes will go on. But this man who doesn't care a lick about laying his faith on the stone in Zion, the Lord Jesus, he will find himself in great trouble. You see, Ahaz has decided the best way to get out of his mess is to say, in Assyria we trust. He turns away from Yahweh's help to trust this wicked power, and it spells his downfall. This chapter is all about help, and we're going to see three things with regard to help. First, I want you to see with me, another helper sought. Another helper sought. We read in verse 16, at that time, that is at the very time when the northern kingdom of Israel had invaded the south, slaughtered over 100,000, and dragged people off into exile, at that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. Now what a devastating statement this is, peering into the darkness of Ahaz's heart. You see, beloved, even when God's people were not necessarily repentant in their trouble, they still knew to cry out to Yahweh for help. The Exodus generation, whom we know to be pretty rotten, cried out for the Lord for help. Exodus chapter 2, various times in the judges period when Sisera's iron chariot subdued God's people, Judges 4, or when the Midianites oppressed them, Judges 6, 
God's people cried out to Yahweh for help. In Samuel's day, after rescuing the people from the Philistines, Samuel set up a rock as a monument and called it Ebenezer, which means stone of help, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. And this is a pattern of divine intervention. And it's such that David puts it into song. Psalm 28, verse 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him my heart trusts and I am helped. Or Psalm 54, verse 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Or Psalm 124, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And this even isn't even to mention Psalm 46, where we find our ever-present help in time of trouble, or Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills, and so forth. Ahaz is throwing all of that away. He's rejecting the name of God, the power of God, the covenant faithfulness of God. When he is weak and vulnerable, laid low in humiliation, the very situation in which God delights to ride the heavens to our help, this man will put no confidence in Yahweh, no matter what the Lord has done in the past. All Ahaz can see are the things of this earth, the physical realm rather than the spiritual reality. And he knows Assyria is the greatest force this region has ever seen. And as he looks at his situation, he sees nothing but his own weakness because, verse 17, the Edomites have again invaded and defeated Judah and carried off captives. It wasn't enough that Israel had already done this. These raids continue and losses keep coming. Indeed, verse 18, the Philistines add to the assault. Judah is like a bleeding fish in the water and the sharks of the nations are circling for a piece of flesh. Well, the Philistines are going to get theirs too. They make raids on the cities in the Shephelah, which is going towards the valley in the Mediterranean Sea. And they make raids in the Negev of Judah, which is south of Jerusalem. The Philistines took six particular cities and other villages. And then into verse 18, they moved in and they settled there, we read. Judah, brethren, is being dispossessed of their own land. Now, what would cause the Lord to take the inheritance that He gave to Judah and now take it away from them? Well, in a word, it's sin. God's people had been repeatedly warned about this. Deuteronomy 30 is just one example. Moses declared, Israel, if you obey God's commandments, God will bring blessing on your land. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. And that perishing is spelled out in the curses of the covenant. Enemies attacking, exile, and death. And that's exactly what we're seeing in our text. The Chronicler is making explicit connection to Ahaz leading the people of God into sin. All these raids and defeats happen, verse 19, for the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. Ahaz's wicked leadership is driving the nation into the ground, resulting in the wrath of God. 
And brethren, this is another reminder to us of a biblical principle we see a number of places. Of the scourge of bad leadership. Corrupt leadership, whether it be in the home, or in the church, or in the nation, doesn't affect the leader alone. It affects everyone under the rotten leader. And therefore, any of us who are here tonight who are leaders must see this principle and strive not to bring trouble on those who are under us. Reject your sin, which Ahaz didn't do. Fight against your unfaithfulness. Don't believe the lie that your sin won't hurt anybody else. Don't damage people in your home or in this church with godless conduct and careless deeds. But what makes this whole situation worse here is that God has brought this humiliation on Judah out of a fatherly heart to restore them. God's discipline is never angry revenge. I'll get you back for all of your evil. It's discipline designed to cause you to turn back to Him. <clears throat> Remember Amos chapter 4. It's a great example of this. Five times Amos speaks of an affliction coming upon God's people in view of their sin and yet says, yet you did not return to me. You see, if God's people return to Him, even though their sin is monstrous, heinous, the Lord had said He would restore their fortunes and have mercy on His people. The Lord will forgive any sinner who turns. Look at Moses, the murderer. David, the adulterer. Peter, the liar. Manasseh, the idolater. Paul, the persecutor. And see the willingness of our God to wash all their sins away. What is it so Ahaz just stops up his ears to that truth? And he now adds to his sin by turning to a serious king for help. He substitutes for the faithful, merciful, slow to anger God who will always keep His covenant, who will forgive and abundantly pardon the lying, abusive, terrorizing king of Assyria. And it is yet another act of idolatry. Now what's the message to the Chronicler's audience and to us as we watch this unfold? Maybe it's Jeremiah's question. Jeremiah 2.2 to the people of Judah. God asks through His prophet, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? That question is even more powerful to the exiles because they have seen Yahweh bring a touch of restoration. They've returned to the land. The temple's rebuilt. The wall's rebuilt. Will you then look for another helper when Yahweh has been so kind to you? Well, brethren, what about us? When distress comes upon you, will you rely on man to be your deliverer? Will you turn to your own devices in trouble? Will you refuse to look to God or cry out to God? What's it going to be? Now, it's true we don't have surrounding nations breathing down our necks and pillaging our cities and taking away our loved ones. But when our various crises come, to whom do we turn? Do we turn to our own wits to figure it out ourselves? Do we turn to our checkbooks? Do we turn to our strength to grin and bear the trouble, to muscle through with raw determination? Do we put our trust in horses and chariots 
It was just the ancient version of the tools of defense, whether guns or tanks or stealth bombers. In whom do we trust? Those whose trust is in the Lord are found praying to the Lord. Those whose trust is in the Lord are found clinging to the promises of the Lord. Well, is that us? Examine your life. When trouble of any form comes, whether it's physical affliction, cancer, the onset of dementia, severe arthritis, or whether it's financial affliction, job loss, mounting bills, or family affliction, living with ungodly spouses or rebellious children, or when you're wrestling through bad decisions, or maybe when the trouble comes upon you because of your own sin, do you still run to Yahweh's presence? Do you plead with the Lord to be your helper? Do you not see His kindness? How much more can we say that the Lord has been kind for what has He done? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Shall we think something is wrong with our God, that He's defective? That He isn't sufficient to help in whatever situation we find ourselves? Brethren, do we stake our souls on the promises of God for comfort, for peace, for provision, for spiritual strength, for daily help? Have we learned to say with the psalmist, blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. May God help us to see the foolishness of adding to our sin by refusing the help of the Lord when He has a track record of helping foolish sinners. May our cry be, O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the help of man. But then secondly, see, there was another helper sought, but now secondly, that helper disappoints. Ahaz has put all his chips in the basket of Assyria. He believes Assyria will rescue him from his crisis. And maybe he tells himself, if we're using some sanctified imagination, if in this sea of treachery, where all the other kings of the land are standing against Assyria, if I stand with Assyria, then I will be rewarded. Maybe I won't merely see the city of Jerusalem spared. You know, remember the Empire Strikes Back, Lando Calrissian? He secures the cloud city. For those of you who are Star Wars fans, you'll, you'll know that's the case. He secures it. But that's all he's able to do. I think maybe Ahaz wants more. Maybe I'll be given a special title, an honorific position in the Assyrian hierarchy, like the friend of the king, what Hushai was to David, or what Pilate was accused of not being with respect to Caesar. Some of us remember our history, how in 1780, Benedict Arnold, in whom George Washington had total trust, determined to betray the cause of the American Revolution to the British for 10,000 pounds and the rank of Brigadier General. Arnold agreed to hand over the military fortress at West Point. Maybe Ahaz is reasoning like this. I'm going to get something out of this. I'm going to get a name. I'm going to get some money. We don't know what assurances, if any, that Tiglath-Pileser III gave to Ahaz. But then the text conveys the brutal truth. Verse 20. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him, Ahaz, and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. Now, we're not given all the details of the affliction, but the explanative of verse 21 at least gives us a picture. 
We're told that Ahaz's king literally squeezed or pressed hard against Ahaz instead of making him firm or imparting any kind of assistance. 4 verse 21, Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king and of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria. But it did not help him. Ahaz is cheering, Great is Assyria! Great is Tiglath-Pileser III! We are your loyal subjects! We'll stand with you against all these rebels! But Tiglath-Pileser says, That's nice, but pay me lots of money, or I'll ravish your city and kill you as a usurper to my power. Yes, Jerusalem is spared here. It certainly could have been worse. Tiglath-Pileser does not break down the walls. He does not burn the temple. He does not cart off Ahaz in chains or anything like that. But he doesn't stop the raidings of these other nations. That's why Ahaz called him to help in the first place. The king doesn't post Assyrian stormtroopers to guard Judah as though it's sacred ground to him. He claims that that region is now his, but he doesn't care what happens to the people And he certainly doesn't care what happens to Ahaz. What a depressing picture. Ahaz turned to Assyria for help, and all Assyria does is take. It could have been worse, but no practical help is given in the face of a withering economy, dead soldiers, insecure borders with enemies coming in and settling, and the lack of ability to defend themselves against anything. Ahaz is left destitute and he has to pay the big bad bully. This scene, beloved, is a reminder of the folly of making deals with the devil or giving in to master sin. Now I know Tiglath-Pileser III isn't the devil. He isn't sin personified. But he's a menace. He's an antichrist figure set to destroy. And sure, the Lord is sovereign over him, using this wicked king to bring judgment. But that doesn't make his character solid. In like manner, the Lord is sovereign over the devil and ordains Satan's actions to assault. The Lord handles sin sinlessly and He uses it for His purpose. But that doesn't make Satan any less wicked. You see, sin and Satan both make promises. They offer to us a mirage of peace. If you satisfy yourself in this way, If you do my bidding and reject that demanding sovereign, the Lord, then you will have independence or pleasure or a calm life. Satan dangles in front of us the passing pleasures of sin, a momentary relief from your trouble, a fleeting notion that the distress will go away, that you are the master of your destiny, that you'll settle your problems yourself. But then the fact is, you are not helped at all. I think of Cain in Genesis 4 whose thank offering wasn't accepted by the Lord because he did it out of mere form and not from faith. Sin pitched to him the idea of going through the motions, of offering it his way, and the Lord wasn't pleased. The Lord came to Cain with a rebuke that shows sin's true nature. Cain was told, Cain, if you do well, Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen to this, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. 
but you must rule over it. The picture painted there of sin is striking. Sin is not an uninvested bystander offering you a better path, ready to be your friend, ready to give you some help. Satan is not a disinterested figure showing you, oh, this is the good way to go. He is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Sin is like a lion ready to runge at you and to tear you to pieces. Therefore, beloved, what does sin ever do for us? Paul asks us this question in Romans chapter 6 after telling us, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Paul then says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit or what result were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? To put it another way, what did sin ever do for you? What did following the voice of the flesh or the temptations of the devil ever get you? Did it really help you? Maybe you got a flash of pleasure when sin was committed, but was there relief? No. There was shame. There was misery. And in the end, those things result in death. Well, that's how it is here with Ahaz. He is making a deal with the devil, refusing to help the, the help of the Lord. And in the end, he isn't helped at all. Beloved, let us learn a lesson here. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. If we aim to preserve our sinful way of life, if we reach out to the ungodly to give us security, they won't do it because they're unreliable. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. And it's as if Ahaz in his tight spot just wraps another coil of the serpent around himself to squeeze himself into destruction. Now we can all see the stupidity of this conduct but are we fleeing from the same path? I know we're not trying to make alliances with a playground bully and giving him our lunch money, but are we looking for help in all the wrong places? When distress comes upon us, do we turn to loan sharks or gambling sites? Do we turn to the latest pill that will solve all of our anxieties? Do we turn to alcohol or drugs or sex to escape an oppressive feeling? Do we lie and cheat and steal and slander and tie ourselves to those who do so that trouble won't sink us? Don't be surprised when you set your hopes on men or money or pleasure when you are actually just sunk deeper into distress rather than delivered from it. Let your prayer be that of Henry White instead. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, O help of the helpless, abide with me. Finally, see with me now. Help that ruins. Ahaz was already in distress when he sent to the king of Assyria. But now that Assyria didn't do anything to help, but only took his money, what will Ahaz do now? Well, it's a mercy of God that he's still breathing. Rezin, the king of, Sy of Syria, who stood against Tiglath-Pileser III, is executed. Pekah, the king of Israel, who stood against Tiglath-Pileser, is assassinated. But Ahaz lives. 
Will he then see that there is time to seek the Lord in the day when he would be found? No. But look at verse 22. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same King Ahaz. Now it's hard to imagine a guy who had made metal images for the Baals and made various offerings to gods in the valley of the son of Hinnom who had burned his sons in the fire to Chemosh, worshiping false deities under high places and on every green hill. It's hard to imagine this guy growing more faithless. In what way, you might ask? Well, we get three ways specified in the text. First, verse 23, he sacrificed to the god of Damas- gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, note that word help again, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. Now, it is true, Syria, as our text had already indicated all the way back up in verse 5, defeated Judah and took captives from Judah. So Ahaz assumes the gods that I'm currently worshiping are not as strong as the gods of Damascus. What I need to do is worship the stronger gods, and then I'll be helped. Now this logic is absurd on many levels, but let me just mention one that even Ahaz should have been bright enough to see. Yes, Syria defeated Judah around 735-734 BC, but a mere two to three years later, and promptly after Ahaz had given all his gold and silver to Tiglath-Pleser III, Assyria whipped Damascus. Now, if the gods of Damascus are so powerful, couldn't they have stopped the Assyrians? Ah, but they don't. Damascus is crushed, Rezin is killed, and the gods of this people look like total losers because they are. They are are no gods at all. Well, that logic is completely lost on Ahaz. And it's another reminder to us all that sin makes you stupid. Sin warps your mind. Your brain is ransacked by the disease of sin so that you see things to help you that cannot help you. And this ridiculousness adding to his guilt against the Lord is more faithless action. Then, surprise, surprise, these false gods, end of verse 23, were the ruin of him and of all Israel. This additional faithlessness leads Ahaz to the point of no return where no more mercy will be offered, where there will be no more repentance, where he will sink himself into total destruction. And yet in his darkened state, Ahaz doesn't care about Yahweh at all. He's more faithless. Secondly, verse 24, he destroys the vessels for the service in the house of the Lord, and then he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. The implication here is, He prevented anyone in the nation from sacrificing in the name of the Lord at the temple. For a brief season, all sanctioned, biblically sanctioned, public worship is cut off. It's like the scene, the depressing scene that we see throughout Europe and some places in our own land where worship spaces are turned into a historical relic rather than a functioning sanctuary to bless the name of God. And if all that weren't enough, A third thing is done to show more faithless action. Verse 24, Ahaz made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In verse 25, in every city of Judah, he made high places to make offerings to other gods. It's like this guy's hedging his bets. 
if there's another God I hear about whom I may worship, who may somehow offer me help, I'm going to do it. He gives full allegiance to no one, but a little piece of himself to as many gods as he possibly can. And what does this pervasive idolatry do? Well, it provoked the anger of the Lord, the God of His fathers. And I want you to really note that last phrase, the God of His fathers. This is a reminder that Ahaz stands in the line of the people receiving covenant privileges. He is a child of the covenant, but he throws off loyalty to God. And what does it mean for him? (coughs) Excuse me. It means he will meet God in faithfulness. You see, brethren, God is faithful and we rejoice in it. God is faithful to bless obedience. God is faithful to rain down His covenant blessings upon those who love Him. But God is also faithful to punish covenant breakers, to bring curses on those who mock His name. God is faithful and it will kill you if you refuse to honor the Lord and His covenant. And yet that is the route Ahaz chooses to go. He begins his reign in sin. He adds to his sin. And then he finishes his life with a flurry of sin so that when he slept with his fathers, in idiomatic expression just to say that he died, he's buried in Jerusalem, but the people refuse to give him the normal honor due a faithful king. They do not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. Now, that is a slight you know, a very small thing we would say in view of the fires of hell that the man experiences after he dies. But the point is to publicly convey this is what happens to one who refuses the Lord's help. The Lord once said to the judge Eli, those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, I will lightly esteem. Ahaz is lightly esteemed. The helpers he sought led to his ruin because his rest was not in the Lord. And again, the obvious question to the Chronicler's audience and to us is how will we respond to the discipline of the Lord? Will we learn from the chastisements God brings upon us to turn to Him? Or will we act with even more faithlessness in the face of our trouble? Will we add to our distress with self-devised plans to bring ourselves deliverance? Or will we seek the God who is ready to help His people, who is ready to be gracious, who is ready to receive back the repentant sinner, who is ready to pour out mercy on those who seek Him? This verse, or excuse me, this chapter is really a commentary on Proverbs 13, 15. The way of the treacherous is hard. Do you want to live the hard life? Do you want to go to your death being lightly esteemed by the Lord and meeting His faithfulness in your judgment? Or do you want to be able to say, the Lord is on my side, is my helper? May we all learn to embrace Isaiah's great declaration of God's character. I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. And I say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. And what is the proof to us? Proof that Ahaz rejected. It is that 
virgin bearing a child, whose name shall be called Emmanuel. And if our hope is in Him, we will never be put to shame. May we find the Lord our God to be our helper and trust nothing else. Let's pray together. Lord, we bow before You, thanking You for the warning You give us in this passage of trying to find help in all the wrong places. Lord, we know that we are prone to commit sins just like this, to uh, idolatrously commit ourselves to something other than You. But Lord, we pray that our heart's desire would be to turn from our sin and to rest solely on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, heaven and earth has nothing that we desire save You. So Lord, make our hearts seek You in the day that You may be found. And may we know Your faithfulness raining down blessings upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen.